If you explain the concept of periodization to someone who's not a scientist, TM, um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I, when, when I do that, they're, they, the reply tends to be, and they're not doing that now. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana and I'm from the University of Oslo and I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University and a very special guest, Sophia Cruel, who is a PhD student at the Meta Research Innovation Centre in Berlin and co-host of the Reproducibility Podcast. Sophia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. We've had, um, we've had Amy on previously, um, so um, now it's just Sam. So, Sam, we're, we're coming for you. You're collecting the whole set. We're collecting all, just like Pokemon. Love the old <laughs> oh, God. That's only mildly insulting, Dan. Just like Pokemon. It's only three of them. Aren't there hundreds of Pokemon? I think I think so. I think so. This is, this is more like interviewing like uh, medically unusual triplets. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're really. freaks, not Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, e- e- exactly. Even, e- even better. Now, <laughs> Sophia, can you tell us a little bit about your, your current PhD and, and how you got there? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I'm doing a PhD at Metric B in Berlin now, um, which I started four months ago. So I've, I've only just finished my master's a little bit more than that um, ago, t- time ago. Oh, God, I can't even do English anymore. Um, so I, I just I just finished my master's. I'm, I just started my PhD. Um, how I got there, um, essentially, so I did philosophy at undergrad and then switched to psychology because I thought, you know, I want to do something that is less subjective and that has more of an impact. Um, and I, so I switched for final year and I very quickly realized that that was um, some very flawed reasoning on my end um, <laughs> and had a, had a slight existential crisis. Um, but that led me to Amsterdam where I did my master's um, to because I wanted to focus on psychological methods and statistics. And then in Amsterdam, I got completely radicalized when it comes to open science um, and I got introduced to meta-science topics and, and stuff like that. Um, and I went to SIPS as well in Grand Rapids, which is just great as an introduction to that community as well. Um, That's so where the- you met me. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. In it's the- a seminal event if we extend seminal down as low as catching the bus <laughs> one morning or uh, buying a new pair of shoes. Yeah. The reason why I'm doing a meta-research PhD now is because I met James Heather's in Grand Rapids, Michigan, scarless lies in 2018. All of it. <laughs> that's that's the that's the what's it the, the sack of rice that fell over and caused everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I've been favorably compared to a sack of rice, and we're only two minutes in. Go on. Um, where was it? Yeah, sips. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Basically, I then after that, I it was so I was um, at the end of my first year of of the masters, and I started thinking about what I want to do for for a PhD. And I'd done, a re- I'd done a research internship um, in a sort of, quote, uh, substantive field as well, because this is, this is a great um, thing about the masters in the Netherlands, that you mostly get to do a research internship and a thesis. So you kind of have two different projects for your masters, um, which is a great way of getting like an in- sort of better insight into different areas. Um, but that, that research internship kind of, I don't know, it kind of cemented that idea that I wanted to do meta research, that maybe I wasn't. Yeah, maybe that that's what I wanted to focus on because that was what I was most interested in. And so I looked out for um, meta-research PhD positions starting this year. Um, and a bit more than a year ago, I found 
the one that I have now advertised on Twitter and wow. <laughs> sent an email based on that tweet. Um, and yeah, that's how I ended up here. Basically, um, Twitter. Yes. That's, that's always the answer. <laughs> the magic of Twitter. <laughs> mm, the cause and, and, and solution to all those conflicts. <laughs> exactly. And you had, you've had a, you've had a preprint that, that's recently come out. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, um, tell us about that one. Uh, yeah, we preprinted this, um, just on Saturday. Basically, um, so I did my master's thesis on the topic pre-registration in cognitive modeling. Cause I thought, Ooh. um, you know, how, how could you, how could I be the most trolley? Um, <laughs> trolley? How, trolley, right? Um, oh, is, is, is that a, is that a thing like Jeff and Jeff maybe? No, it's just weird German pronunciation and proper pronunciation. Um, but yeah, so I, I did that as my master's thesis and, um, this is basically, this is a paper, um, that came from that thesis. Um, so, well, may, let me, let me, sorry, let me back up a little. Um, so the first part of this master's thesis, we've already published as a comment to the lead L paper from, um, earlier this year, which is, I don't know if you saw that, that's a paper that had 20 commentaries. Um, and it was, yeah, so it was basically, it was a very, very, it was a very general, um, paper on pre-registration and cognitive modeling. Um, mm-hmm. and they invited commentaries and lots and lots of people had opinions. Three of that were me and, um, oh, sorry, the other way around, right? Sorry. Uh, Angelika Stefan, Nathan Evans and me. Um, and we, so Angelika, and Nathan and I were both at Amsterdam as well. And I was obviously at Amsterdam then. Um, Angelica is kind of also in this open science sphere and Nathan has done lots of cognitive modeling. Um, and we proposed this categorization of cognitive modeling as a first step of, we, at least that's what that kind of was our aim of getting some clarity into this debate. Um, because essentially people were talking a lot about, um, what works and doesn't work for cognitive modeling as a whole, as like one big unit, one blob. Um, and that we think at least, or I, I think doesn't make that much sense because that it's like saying just science in general, um, like <laughs> cognitive modeling, like research in cognitive modeling spans everything from the really exploratory to the really confirmatory. So talking about something like pre-registration, which is kind of, most applicable in confirmatory, so in more confirmatory context, contexts. Um, so, so talking about that on, on the level of all of cognitive modeling is going to end you, uh, end up in, in weird, uh, kind of vaguenesses, I guess, where, where it's not really clear whatever, what people are talking about. Now, that's really interesting because my my conception, originally my conception of of, of modeling was this kind of this way that it could it would actually be difficult to 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 pre-register this thing. But um, when I when I um when I was was chatting with you recently a, a few weeks ago in uh, in in Leipzig, um, it, it was eye-opening because you 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 were mentioning how that there is actually this like like this spectrum of ways you can actually approach modeling. Yeah, can you give us a few examples of sort of both ends of the spectrum? Yes, of course. Um, so essentially on the, on the very exploratory side, you've got model development, which is kind of the most important part in a way, right? Because that's, that's where models are created. Um, either by extending an existing model or by, um, 
complete, right, by, by, by reducing it or by just developing a completely new model, right? Um, so that's kind of on the, on the very exploratory side of things because you're creating something new. You're, you're trying to, um, to formalize an explanation that you have about a psychological process. And, and what's um, an example of a, of a, of a what's, what's like a, a concrete example of, of a model of that nature? Uh, so like a diffusion model. Um, okay. for example, yeah. So just like that's an, an evidence accumulator model. Um, okay. Uh, in used in decision making, um, on reaction time data. Mm-hmm. Um, which is actually really useful um, there as well because um, you can, rather than just looking at mean reaction times, you can then um, you can then kind of decompose that into the the things that you're into the sort of components that you're interested in. Um, assuming that, of course, your model is good, right? So it's <laughs> none, like none of this, like it's yeah. If, if if your model isn't isn't great, then it still doesn't say anything anything more. Um, but yeah, so that, I guess like that's sort of on the on the confirm on, on the exploratory side. Um, but it's but that's that's not everything, right? Because if you if you're just developing models um, and you're not also evaluating them or comparing different models to see which one um, is gives the best explanation of of data that you have, um, or if you're not applying it, then kind of what what are you developing it for? Um, and so those were the three other categories. So mm. model evaluation, model comparison, and model application that we kind of proposed um, as a categorization, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I think I think this this sort of this, this confusion that you that you are having um, is one that kind of made this debate that that I saw happening on Twitter between um, open science advocates and modelers in quotation marks mm. <laughs> so i'm not sure if that's kind of if that's the term modelers i guess yeah yes it is um so i think i think that confusion made that debate run dry quite a lot quite a lot of time because uh, open science advocates without any um expertise or um, knowledge of um cognitive modeling kind of just at some point just had to shrug and say well i guess this is not my my field this is not my area so i can't continue talking about this right um and yeah, so I, th- I think I think that's that's why it's uh, yeah, so it's quite a quite a good thing to think about uh, what what we actually mean by by cognitive modeling. And I think I think a lot of the time when people were talking about cognitive modeling and, and they were saying co- pre-registration doesn't work for cognitive modeling, what they meant by cognitive modeling was model development, and that's mm. that's completely fair enough because yes, pre-registration probably doesn't work for model development because how can you pre-register? something that you're still creating, <laughs> right? But it's not everything. Um, and so the, the thing that we're, fo- that the sort of the aspect that we're, we were focusing on in this new preprint um, was model application. And so in model application, you're using um, the cognitive model like a measurement tool, just like, like any other um, statistical model. Um, and so that's, that's, that's really, that's on the, on the very confir- confirmatory side of, of the spectrum. And, is therefore, of course, the the most straightforward <laughs> part for uh, applying pre-registration because it should. Why are you just- laughing, Dan? <laughs> no, I- I'm laughing because this is this is extremely timely with all the with all the debate that's happening, particularly when it comes to this idea of of, of pre-registration and and, and modelling. Thanks, I think so and, too. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's very timely, and and I think you hit the nail on the head in that when this debate was happening, you had a lot of open science advocates. Kind of going well, you know. This is the, this is the limit of my understanding. 
And then from from what we saw from 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 the so-called modelers, then there also seemed to be quite quite a lot of misunderstanding as well as to the main purposes of pre-registration. Yeah. And I think a lot of this came to head with this preprint that came out about a month ago. And at the time when it was first submitted, the preprint was titled Pre-Registration is Redundant at Best. Mm-hmm. But it has recently uh, been updated. James, James, there's a new title. There's a new uh, title. Yeah. Just, I, like, I like that, though. I love a good punchy title. A good a sh- shake in the cages. A, but it's yeah, more than a punchy absolutely. title, right? It's a kind of a punch in the face title. But <laughs> Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's a guar, there's a, a guar lyric. There's called "You're all worthless and weak," and I'm good, trying to use that someday. <laughs> I mean, that's that's, that's bringing it. Well, okay, what's the, the what's the new what's the new title, Dan? If you don't like that one, the new title is "Is pre-registration worthwhile?" Question mark. So there's ah, well, it's gone from a closed question to an open question. Could, yeah. Could you could you all potentially be worthless and weak question mark? That's not quite so. <laughs> it's not quite it's not quite enough. Yeah, so this this preprint has been updated and the original preprint caused uh caused a lot of stir and I think a lot of this came down to this a misconception of what pre-registration um uh pre-registration does. And to to sort of highlight this, I'm going to read out the first sentence of the first version. And the first sentence in the second version. So the first version goes, the key implication argued by proponents of pre-registration is that it improves the diagnosticity of statistical tests. Okay. The second version is proponents of pre-registration argue that among other benefits, it improves the diagnosticity of statistical tests. And I think this is actually, uh, it's, it, this is a really good demonstration of how open peer review, particularly through Twitter and through really thoughtful blog posts, can actually improve papers. Because there was a number of really, really well thought through responses um, on Twitter and also through blogs, which actually, and, and a lot of these responses were like, hey, um, if this isn't actually what pre-registration is is about, pre-registration is 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 about about a lot of things, but it, it is most specifically about reducing researcher biases, and so in that sense, it is not redundant. Um, so that that's kind the, of the one that I always hear is forethought. That's the thing that people always say when they've done it. the 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 kind of personal benefit of having to inhabit that space before you lift a finger to do anything at all. Everyone says that the ref- the reflective component of me was the thing that I personally, but without without getting into the elements of um, how does this prevent forking paths or whatever, the thing that people say that, like, that they noticed the most is the fact that having to occupy that space beforehand changed the way that they thought about what they were going to do. Yeah, and that's you- a very abstract kind of thing, but I have seen many people say that. Do you agree with or that? Or is that is that just is that just me? Oh, what do, what do you you two probably know more about this than I do and Sophia's either looking German or giving me a bad look and I can't tell the difference on the internet. I think it's just resting German face, yeah. Resting German face. <laughs> <laughs> so Sophia, do, do do you think that that is the case that a lot of people actually it, – it's this argument that pre-registration is good because it, one of the strengths is it actually makes you think, should I actually pre-register this in the first place? Are, are my ideas are my ideas of what's going to happen um, 
uh, specific enough that I can actually pre-register this thing. Do, do, do you think this is one of those benefits or where do you fall on that? I think it's probably one, like, I mean, it's a, a, a side benefit. I don't think that's, that's the, the main reason why pre-registration is useful, right? I mean, I think, I think I'd say like the main reason why it's useful is to, um, sort of constrain research because of freedom, constrain biases from creeping in because we're human. We're not, mm. there's no such thing as the sort of objective, objective, rational, uh, human being. Um, and so, yeah, so I guess, I guess that's the, the main function. Um, but sure, um, making sort of, well, it, it seems weird because part of the reason why pre-registration is so popular, I think, is because it's, it, well, it's so simple and it seems so intuitively right and needed in science. Right. It's, as in, so if, if you, if you explain the concept of pre-registration to someone who's not a scientist, TM, um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I, when, when I do that, they're like, the reply tends to be, and they're not doing that now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I've, I've literally, I've literally <laughs> had exactly that happen. They say the same thing about error detection and peer review. Uh, I go around mm-hmm. looking for mistakes after things have been peer reviewed. We look at this kind of substructure and mathematical nature of mistakes. We're interested in the kind of accuracy of things rather than the ideas. And everyone says, how did you just come up with that? <laughs> is that how is that not a thing? Who's that, that? Oh, one of those late night hosts has a section called, how is this not a thing? Or how is this a thing? Yeah. It's exactly the same response. Um it's interesting to think that someone that you'd meet in a pub would have that conception of the way that things ought to work, and you you have a conversation with them, and they go, "Well, this is the, this is the fancy new thing. We're all organising around what appears to be a sensible idea." <laughs> and someone someone who's a gardener or something, I go, "Yeah, I could have told you that, dickhead." And I'm like, oh, wow. Well, I, mean, it's part, it's, I guess it's part of the reason why why so much of this movement is based around or like done by uh, or led by younger people or not younger people necessarily in the age sense but younger to science i guess right yeah, because we, we we prefer the term early career research thank you that was the term i was looking for which for some <laughs> reason my brain was not getting at our first aid <laughs> um, and i think but, a lot of it is sorry go on sophia oh yeah so but my my friend was you know so it it seems kind of weird that one of the clearly good side effects of this is probably that people are realizing that by, by thinking through what they're going to do beforehand, they realize that maybe they shouldn't be pre-registering this um, because it's exploratory and they they haven't got all the information that they need to make these choices, right? Like, it, obviously, that's great, but in a way, it is also a bit odd. Um, but, I mean, mainly it's fantastic, but... That was kind of my point about this. Uh, well, about it's, it's all right if you stay on a topic long enough to know anything about it, sufficient that it might be pre-registered. But I don't know how common that is. You do 10 separate exploratory studies in a row on 10 slightly different things. Well, I think we'll um, probably end up – I think I think this, this, this might be something that pre-registration could be helping us with, right? That rather than – holding confirmatory uh, research up as this ultimate and only goal, um, we realize that actually a lot of the research that we are doing, that people are doing, is exploratory and that that's fine because we don't know enough. Or if we if we say that it's not fine, then then we have to change something, right? But either way, um, yeah, maybe, maybe it'll actually show us, tell, tell us something more interesting about the way we do science. I was going to say one thing that I do agree with in the paper is that pre-registration doesn't magically make bad theory good. 
Um, but at the same okay. time, uh, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> no, it's just that that idea. I mean, this is a, if all all it takes for you to realize that that can't be the case is to see one really roll gold solid shit house pre registration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, which, but, which is know? true. But it, yeah, yeah, that yeah, doesn't as matter. Com- Right, like yeah. it, I don't think you need to see a bad pre-registration for that. I think you just need to think about what pre-registration is doing. No one ever said no, that pre-registration is going to make theory better. To experience it, to really get an idea. Because look, everything, everything that turns up. I'm doing some work on impact factors right now, and the the whole idea of like anything that's me- anything that's measured will eventually be beaten with a spanner in a hallway has never been more apparent than doing this particular work. So mm-hmm. I mean, y- y- from from that mindset, yes, of course, you'd expect. The moment that it exists as a concept for someone to start cocking about with it and ruining it for everyone. Um, there's only really a problem when they put, put it on a pedestal to say, this is pre-registered, therefore you need to trust me and my special little research in particular. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think with registered reports, um, look, okay, if if we had BEM and BEM was a, was a registered report, that would never never have gotten through because the theory is just completely implausible. So I, I don't think that argument holds up. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, look, I don't think anyone thinks that pre-registration makes it better, um, but it may potentially give the veneer of a better study. If this, oh look, oh, Wait, look it's got a badge. No one thinks that pre-registration is going to make your research, well, your theory better, not your research. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay, so th- sure. theory, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, and uh, but. Essentially, it seems like it seems to be that what's being argued here is that um, it's going to give a, a, a veneer of authority. Um, but I, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, it's yeah, like it's, it's especially the registered reports in that you can actually review the theory beforehand. And one of the one of the things a lot of people think registered reports is you can say anything you want as long as it's well powered. But that's not the case. If you look at the the instructions for authors, it's a combination of um, is is this sufficiently powered? Um, are you doing all the right things in methods, in, in, in the methods, in, in sort of in respects to methods? But at the same time, is this also a question that's worth that's worth asking? Um, and if it's not worth asking, then 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 essentially you've got really really bad theory. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that really flies that argument. So it, re- it really comes down to this idea of people, which I think why the work that you're doing, Sophia, is actually quite important because you're someone that's actually got experience both with pre-registration but also with with, with modelling. So, to have your foot in both sides of the camp, then you can sort of understand the perspectives from different people. Um, whereas so, people so I'm never- not a mathematical psychologist, right? Like, I'm not an expert on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> But 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 still, there there is some experience with um with with, with modeling there. So yeah, I mean, but yeah, like, like I said before, this just to see the changes. And on OSF, it's really easy. You go to the OSF um, preprint and you can say download version one. It's a two three page document. And you can easily compare the first version with the second version. You can even see that the um the the the, the titles change. I was looking at it. I'm like, am I on the right website? Has it? Yeah. And they don't actually the look closely. <laughs> And it, and it's completely changed. So yeah, look, um, yeah, it's 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 been an interesting debate, and it's sort of died down a bit since since it all came out. But um, yeah, I'm I'm going to link to a few interesting blogs which have um, which have discussed this. Yeah, I have some pretty good thoughts on this. But just because you you mentioned this theory thing, like one thing they also argued was about um, that like basically the, the reason why it was originally redundant at best was because they argued that actually if you have strong enough theory that you, you wouldn't need pre-registration, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
I think, I think something along those lines, right? Because that's why it was redundant at best. And then it was also harmful if you misinterpret it in different ways. Yeah. Right. It, um, it, I, I just can't wrap my head around. This is probably really my lack of knowledge around, around this, but how, how could a theory be that good that you wouldn't need if you're doing confirmatory stuff, how could a theory be that good that you wouldn't need pre-registration? I, in, in what situation w- would that be the case? Am I, am I completely missing something? I mean, I, I, I don't think so, but maybe I'm completely missing something. But I think, you know, strong theory is great, but it's like you kind of need an all-encompassing theory because what, like, show me the strong theory that's also going to tell you exactly what outliers to exclude. <laughs> Like as part of the theory, or, or if you're doing, or if you're doing a model comparison study, like is your theory going to tell you what models to choose to compare um, your model to? Right. I mean, strong theory doesn't mean. I don't know. I don't think there's a there's a theory that is uh, that is so all encompassing that it will completely get rid of um, of human of, of the sort of, of human bias. Um, well, I guess you could probably just. I mean, I guess yeah. No, I was just thinking because if 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 you were if you were to have like a robot do do your do do the entire thing, um, then you'd have to pre-specify what you want it to do to such exactly. an extent that you end up doing a pre-registration anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, but I do think I do think that the I do think that the paper um, will probably lead to some more really interesting discussions, and I do think it's a really important point to make. Um, that pre-registration isn't an all-encompassing, like, one-step solution. But strong theory isn't either. Like, we're still human. Exactly. And I, I think, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> so, okay, so, most of us are so cyborg. human. Um, but are you a robot? I cannot answer that question. Are, on you, the are you an it objective? It may incriminate my circuit boards. Rational. <laughs> oh, I'm agent. none of those things. No, I'm but I'm barely I'm barely alive right now. Uh, this is this is why I'm I'm struggling to 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 realize why I'm. I, this had the incredible misfortune on having come out probably in the busiest day of my professional life, which was uh, and I had three grants due in two days. That's it. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was waiting for the like- statement. What's happening? No, no, there's nothing. There's nothing to add to that. I realize what there's a huge void where the insight about this should potentially have come from, and you 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 spent weeks marinating on this and have more background in the first place. Why don't I just sit here and fail to look pretty? No, because I remember I remember I sent it to you, and and you're like, not now. And I'm like, I got grants. And <laughs> that, 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 that was a nicer way that you put it. Far be it for me, it. Sophia, to-, to I, yeah, I probably used more strident language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Far be it for me, Sophia, to want to neglect your area of research. It's not that it's, it's, it's not a statement on its importance. It's a statement on the fact that occasionally I neglect to pay attention. Um, okay. So... In this, uh, I, I haven't read the revision of this either, which makes me I'm now I feel like a, a liability on my own podcast. Um, <laughs> what's the what's is is there a differentiation made here between the registered report model and vanilla pre-registration? Oh, I can't remember. I don't think there is. So. 
No, th- 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 it's basically just pre-registration. Okay, so because there's there's obviously look there's also I've always thought of that as a very broad church, um, especially when I I think anyone who works in a, a reasonably analytical field will have that perspective as well. That pre-registration is not one monolithic thing. It's not like ticking the series of boxes at the end of it when you're submitting to the journal. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, click. It's more what's what's specified, how am I going to analyze it, and then all the human decisions that you mentioned. How am I going to exclude outliers? How do I define what's going to be removed and put into that camp in the first place? If something's an inlier but I don't trust it, how is the trust in measurement verified. Um, what are the things that I'll allow myself to do if the first analysis doesn't say what I want in a particular kind of way? How is that specified? And anything from incredibly good specification to incredibly fucking vague specification is a pre-registration thing in, in, in the big bucket of like what's going to happen eventually. You can have a pre-registration where basically all you really need to do is plug and play with the little X symbols and put in all the fucking numbers so everything's exactly the same. Or you can have a pre-registration that basically goes, we're going to do maths. (laughs) And that's it. Right, but then that's because, so it's it can be really hard to do a pre-registration. And then that's why we have all these templates to do pre-registration better or to to restrain to constrain those restrictions of freedom better to make it easier for people to think of the things that they should be considering to create a good pre-registration right but those what what do you with with, with regards to that what do you what do you personally the expert with the good glasses (laughs) think think of dan's latest uh little fetish for making synthetic data sets which was which I see having a very straightforward role in how you'd set this up in the first place. You're going to pre-register an analysis. What are you going to feed into it? Show it works. Are you asking me a question? I'm asking both of you a question. That's why I'm looking at you instead of the cat. I don't know what you're looking at. Ask your question again, James. I want both of you asking that question, but Sophia's more interesting than you, so she can go first. <laughs> what, what do you, do you, do, how do you see the role of synthetic data sets working in pre-registration? So okay, but I, I thought I thought the main advantage of synthetic, synthetic data sets was that you data sets was that you you'd be able to um, make your data open if like in, in cases where you otherwise wouldn't be well not your data but synthetic data a synthetic version of that data, right? That would that would be I, the primary I, the part the primary benefit, yeah. But so I guess it, I mean I guess of course you know if if you in some way simulate data. Pre-populate the entire yeah, of analytical that's, pathway. Yeah, that's great because then you can then you can actually. Um, but that's more of a simulated data set. So exactly, can, that's more simulated. If, yeah. yeah. So if you, if you could simulate your data, look, simulated data. J- James and I worked in this paper, this this massive um, uh, twenty lab paper looking at uh, heart rate variability and structural brain imaging, and mm. we did our best to pre-register our analysis. Um, but I wasn't actually. We didn't actually work with any simulated data. And doing it, I was when I was actually doing the analysis with the real data set. I'm like, why did I make these decisions? <laughs> so much stuff could have been more straightforward. So it was a pain in the ass because it meant in the actual paper, I have to go, okay, here's what we said, and here's what we actually did because I'm an idiot. But then here are the changes in ju- ju- justifying why we actually did a different type of analysis. Um, but if I actually had 
simulated a data set, I wouldn't have made those. I wouldn't have made those mistakes. Um, so synthetic data is good in the sense of when you're sharing your data, but actually simulating your data set is uh, is super valuable. And I, I think it should almost be a prerequisite when you're doing a re- registered report because how because if you could actually do the simulated data set and go here is my script on a data set that's going to look pretty similar to what we expect. That's amazing. That's going to be really helpful because right now with a very basic registered report, you can say, oh, yeah, we're going to run a t-test. This is how we're going to deal with outliers. Um, this is, you know, if it's non, if it's not normally distributed, we're going to do log transformation, whatever. That's very straightforward. But once you start doing a, a little bit more complex it, it, um, uh, analysis, it's very hard to describe that. Well, at, le- at least for me as a reviewer, if I actually had the real data and went through the script, I can go, wow, that's exactly what they're going to do. Um, so simulated data, it's a skill that I'm trying to get better at. Um, um, Lisa DeBrian does some fantastic tutorials on how to do that on 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 their the Sci Teach R website, which I can link to. Um, and it's 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 really important. And I think um, a really good registered report is is going to have that. Um, or the other thing that you can do is, um, and I, I like the idea that registered reports are now becoming more popular for secondary data, and that's really ha- it's really helpful because say if you're working with UK Biobank half a million samples, what you can do is you can take a thousand of that half a million, run your analysis and go, this is exactly what we're going to do. Um, and then for your primary analysis, you, you, all you do is remove that thousand and you've got an actual data set, which is going to have roughly the same properties. That's going to be amazing. So, I think it's a real strength of doing secondary data analysis and more and more secondary data analysis is, is going to become um, is going to become more important because um, for, for for certain things we're just going to have we're just going to need those sample sizes. Um, otherwise, um, and, and and we shouldn't leave those things out of the dark just because they're um, we haven't um, collected them yet. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of important things. But no, I think that's a good question, James. How can you actually get that simulated data to actually better inform your your your, your registrations? You must. Wow, I had no idea it was such a bad question until you said that was a good question. Well, I, I, what is I, what is everyone what does everyone not know about this, Sophia? What's the? I, I feel like there's 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 a center of these uh, discussions that occasionally happen, and it's it's one of those issues where if you don't know a lot about it, I feel myself checking out a little because I feel like a lot of people are talking at cross purposes. What's what's the confusion? Um, well, so one thing that I mentioned earlier was this is this confusion about um, taking cognitive modeling as as a whole thing when actually as, as as just one uniform thing when it spans everything from very exploratory to confirmatory, right? So I think that's one core cool confusion. Oh, like oh, yeah, one thing that leads to confusion because people are talking about different things because some people are talking mm. about model development and other people are thinking more about the application of cognitive models. So that's one core confusion. Um, then, no, I think actually that that's probably, when it comes to this specific debate, debate, I think that's, in my opinion, probably the the main reason why people are talking past each other. Um, or maybe also that, so I think I think maybe some of the, the, the reason why uh, some people are very apprehensive about um, adopting pre-registration in cognitive modeling research in general is because they they might I think I think they might be um, worried about silly reviewers then not seeing that the the study that they're reviewing um, is is one that is mainly about the development of a model um, and then saying well but where's the pre-registration um, mm. because we now we now do pre-registration in in all cases in all bits of research and cognitive modeling 
Um, so I think, I think that might introduce another thing that people, um, that might make people talk past each other. Um, more generally, um, I think there's an issue that we, we have, well, there are now a couple of more, more, spe- more specific templates for pre-registration, but most of the, the main ones in quotation marks, um, are, were created by, um, people doing the same kind of standard, again, in quotation marks, it's a podcast. I keep forgetting because I can actually <laughs> see you. Um, the kind of standard, um, air quotes, air quotes, standard, um, experimental research that has relatively straightforward hypotheses and standard and uses standard statistical analyses like um, ANOVA or whatever. Um, and so, so, so people are doing that research were mainly the people who were creating those um, mm. creation templates or the, the checklists for research because of freedom. So that's kind of what that is tailored for. And then if you're someone and you're doing, um, you're doing like, like, you know, you're doing a model application study or you're doing a confirmatory fact analysis um, or any, any, anything that is in any way more complex than the standard quotation marks approach. And you look at that template that you have, that, that everyone's talking about the standard one that you can find on the OS, on the OSF. You'll very quickly, you know, you, you look at it and you'll be like, well, this, like, where do I put my, my bits of research in here? Like, where do I put my, like, how does this work for my research? And the straightforward answer is it doesn't, right? Because you'll have research degrees of freedom that are specific to different types of research. Um, so that's, mm. that's, so in, in this thing that we pre- in this paper that we pre- well, in this manuscript that we preprinted last weekend, um, that's one of the things that we did as well. We kind of thought through some research use of freedom specific to model application, because otherwise, like how how can we create a pre-registration template if we if we don't know what right. the research use of freedom are that we want that template to be, to make it easier to constrain for a researcher, right? Um, and so I think that's something that um, we need to do more of um, as, well, we, just as, as, a, as, as scientists um, think about these, um, these reforms in a way that includes other research contexts than, than the, the, the sort of standard one. Um, Air quotes. Air quotes. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying We're to my t- voice. We're, we're going to take a quick break, uh, mainly because it's halfway through, but also because my cat is about to eat my favorite succulent and I need to kick him up the ass. <laughs> we'll be back soon. James and I often get asked by listeners how they can support the show, and there are two ways you can do that. Firstly, you can join the 100 other patrons who support us financially on Patreon. We've got a $1 tier, which gives you a monthly Everything Hurts newsletter, and a $5 tier, which gives you the newsletter, as well as access to an exclusive mini episode, which is released every month. The second way that you can support the show is by sharing links to each episode on social media, be it Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever you're using. We'd love it. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. For this episode, we are chatting with Sophia Cruel. Uh, Sophia. Um- <laughs> he did it again. You what? massive racist. Cru- uh- no, I liked uh, it. It was, like, it was like a silent, silent W. Oh, I don't know. 
it's <laughs> crew well, crew well. There we go. Yeah, there we go. Crew well. So crew you, well. You've got a you've got a ship, and it needs to be run by competent people. Crew well. Crew well. Yeah. You, you hurt someone's so feelings. Cruel. Cruel. Uh, let me let me go on. Let me go on, James. We <laughs> you were you were the co-host of reproducibility, and uh, we spoke with um with Amy um a good a good six months ago, but there's been. A lot that's been going on since. Uh, what's been happening recently with uh, with the reproducibility podcast and the reproducibility movement in in general? Yeah, I mean it's it's grown a lot since you talked to Amy. Um, we're now wait, I wrote down I wrote down these numbers. Um, we now have reproducibility journal clubs at fifty four institutions in seventeen different countries across Jesus. four continents. Fucking wow. wept. Whoa! <laughs> That's a mind yeah, so blown. This, this is so. This is so. I mean, when we started a podcast, all we wanted to do was gob off. You're starting a social movement. You have more than fifty. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. The last time I checked in, I, I thought it was it was thirty or forty, and I thought that's that's truly uh, that's truly something. So, uh, is it? Are they are they new things? Are you co-opting existing journal clubs and rebranding them, or is it all just sort of like if well if they've got one, I want one too because that shit looks fun. Uh, I, as, as far as I know, I think it's it's mainly new journal clubs starting. So it's right. um, mostly early career researchers, mostly graduate students. I think uh-huh. um, starting these. Well, actually, that that might not be true. Definitely, mostly early career researchers starting these journal clubs because they they care about these issues and they they see that. I guess this format um, has worked in other places um, in in getting a community going um, or in uniting an existing community that might not know about the existence of the other people around. Um, and they they start a journal club and it's great. Like we've got a whole, like a really nice sort of supra community or whatever uh, going as well of local organizers. Um, it's, okay, yeah. well, look, we've, we've got lots of scruffy people listening to this in basements. If someone wants to start one, how do they do it? And- how does it work? What makes it different to a normal journal club where you're all mutter for 90 minutes and then go home? <laughs> um, okay, so about how to start one. Um, we now have a fancy website, reproducibility.org, I think. Oh, God. I'm pretty sure it's .org, but, uh, <laughs> well, but you can link to it. We'll link to it. Just just Google reproducibility like the beverage. Um, you know, we like that pun a lot and we overuse it a little bit. Um and then you can you can get started. There's a whole welcome pack um, and everything to get you started. Um, in like how it's different from other journal clubs, um, I'm not sure. I think the main thing is that there's this um, there's this branding, um, and there's a commu- there's this larger community of other journal clubs. Um, so we have um, on the on the on the Slack that that, there, that we have for reproducibility. There's a there's a support channel where um, People who are organizing this kind of chat to each other and you know, maybe sometimes say, Oh, we've only had a couple of people come. Um, it's a bit, it's a bit disheartening. Like, how can we, how can we get more people interested? How can we get more people to know about this and, and talk to us about this stuff? And then you have this entire community that, that can support you, um, in that and they can also celebrate your successes or whatever. It's just, it's really lovely. So I guess, I guess that's probably how it's different. And I do think that probably a part of it is that, um, you're just, by by having a um, having this kind of this this name, having this logo, you just you look more legit legitimate than than just a random journal club, I guess. 
Um, right. Power of branding. <laughs> and what's the yeah, status? The what's the status of, of the um, the teapots? Oh, oh my god, the teapots aren't they great? I still don't have one. <laughs> oh, outrageous! <laughs> what's going on? Um, so that's that's that's, yeah, that's no, that Parsons. That Parsons bloke. He's uh. No, no, it's not. It's not done. No, the teapots are done. Uh, are not done by Basam. No, but basically, the teapots. The reason why, we, why there are teapots now is because um, we're partly um, sponsored by the UK Reproducibility Network, UKRN, which has hey. been absolutely fantastic. Um, and they created some teapots, um, which people have loved because, of course, the pun. Um, and <laughs> if you're um, starting a journal club in the UK, you get a um, a starter pack including those tea- teapots. Um, but one teapot and, and stickers and stuff. Exactly. It's really nice. Um, but no matter where you start, you get, um, like some, like a, a virtual, virtual welcome. And, um, we've, we've created like a, a reading lists for 16 sessions of the journal club. So you could really, you could just start without having to, to put much time into it at the beginning. You could just take those right. and, and run okay. with them and just, just so get you started. Said it- so it's just like a normal journal club, except you have the branding, goodies, a set reading list, a support network, a collective focus, uh, and its whole thing's being actively maintained. Yeah, it's nothing like a normal journal club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, like, it's just like a normal journal club, except for all these really r- substantial changes that we've made to it because we're trying hard to make it a thing. God damn. Um no, it's been it's been really lovely. We now have we, we've got an extended core team as well. So um, it's not just um, Amy and Sam and I um, that we're running the podcast. Um, we now also have Matt and Katie and Jade on board as well, which has been fantastic to to and grow s- this and to to make sure that this is what, what's and- what's your favorite paper that you did tea on? Oh, God, I don't know. We can uh, we we can circle back to that one. Um, but why are you thinking about <laughs> think, why are you thinking about that? Oh, oh yeah. So I, I I think it's really hard to choose one because at the end of the day, it's um most of the time in most most of these sessions, it ends up being less about the paper and more about the discussions that that happen kind of tangentially from that paper. Um, and the kind of exchanges of experiences and um, mm. and views about these more general topics that happen from that sounds like a podcast. Yeah, it's basically it is. I mean, that's the, <laughs> yeah. I guess it is a little bit like a like a live podcast with up to twenty people or whatever. How many people we've got? <laughs> <laughs> and and spit. When, when we do Hertz Live, I hope we have that kind of success. We. <laughs> That that that's on the, that's on the books for for twenty twenty. Uh, speaking speaking of speaking of your podcast, uh, I recently saw I think it was last week that you were doing a spin off podcast with reproducibility. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this was um, because they um, they had these um, protests in the UK about um, pensions and general working conditions of academics, of researchers, of, of people employed by the universities, um, and. We were, we were talking about not putting out a podcast, um, in order to not, um, cross the digital picket line that, digital was, picket. that was going yeah, on. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then I think this was Amy's idea. Um, well, 
it was definitely either either Amy or Sam because they're actually in the UK and so they've they've actually been been faced with this um this this issue much more closely than I have of course um to do kind of a, like exactly as you said a little spin-off uh, podcast um talking to people actively involved in these protests um to get their views and to um to kind of to amplify um what they're what they're thinking about and to amplify what they what yeah what what kind of issues are important to them uh, when it comes to these protests okay so we had we had one episode um in which amy did a, an interview and we're going to uh, we're planning on doing more of these um solidarity episodes solidarity hey. it, so this is going to be milking a, that pun for all it's worth love it is, is this going to be you a know, really uh, okay oh, let, me, let me let me throw some alternative uh spin-off podcasts at you uh what what about one that's really highly technical called purse capacity purse capacity oh all right okay we've we've hit we hit the german barrier haven't we oh, all, no. right, all right all right all right, all right, all right. Never, oh nine never, never. Never mind that. <laughs> um, Wait, you're saying that you just did a pun and I literally don't understand the pun. It's not that it's yeah. bad, or maybe it is bad as well. It's probably bad as well. No, it's it's not. <laughs> it's a it's a reasonably it's a reasonably annoying word. Um, What's the actual English word? Perscapacity. Dan, do you have you heard that word? I've heard the word, but I have no idea what it means. So I'm, I'm also in the, up, I'm also in the dark. Let's look up the actual the quality of having a ready insight into things. Shrewdness. Pers- there you go. How what was capacity? That? How do you write that? Because maybe it's one of those S P I C A C I T Y. There you go. Or in your case, T E A. Heteroscasta. Oh, that's obviously. Come on, Dan. Don't let the puns out of the box, man. That was the obvious statistical podcast offshoot. Yeah, this is a nice new word that I learned. Heteroscedacity. I, I, th- I thought it was going to be one of those words that I just hadn't had never heard um, said out loud, <laughs> that I pronounced differently in my in my head. So, li- li- listen, <laughs> s- send in your best puns. <laughs> your best ah, tea puns. best is- tea puns. Give yeah. us some more inspiration yeah, for, this is, for uh, spinner this podcasts. Is, this is it, bo- bottomless, bottomless potential. Uh, now, Sophia, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, over the last few years, is there anything that you've changed your mind about when it comes to your research? Well, so, I mean, I, I literally just started my PhD. So my or even, research is- No, during, during your master's, during your undergrad, what, what have you, especially considering that you have a background in philosophy, philosophy as science is something that I wish I knew more about, but I don't. So I, I'm a bit jealous in that regard. But uh, thinking about your sort of academic career, is there anything that you've changed your mind about? Well, so the main thing um, I already said earlier, um, yeah, the, the main thing is is this uh, idea that that philosophy is is subjective and that that's bad, and that um, psychology is somehow more objective or more subjective, and that that's good, like this. I've, I've really, so first of all, in, in a very clear way, that's just not the case for psychology <laughs> at all, or for most, for most sciences, probably, um, because they're dumb humans. But secondly, just in, in a, in a, in a, in a broader sense, um, I think I've moved very far away from this idea of, of fetishizing the, the objective of having, uh, objectivity as, as the ultimate goal, uh, as something that scientists, can and should be achieving um 
yeah, as I said, we're, we're not, we're, we're human. We're not perfect, rational agents. Um, we cannot be objective and, um, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't have that as our ultimate goal. And I think that in lots of these discussions, when it comes to, to open science, um, practices, open science reforms, um, a lot of the time I, I hear this kind of as an undertone, um, this, this idea that, oh, you know, if we fix these things, if we do this, this and that, then we'll be able to be the objective for the perfect rational uh, agents that we know that we can be. Um, and I think that that's really dangerous, um, because it, well, first of all, it over overestimates the effect that any of these, um, tools can have, because that's what they are at the end of the day, they're tools. Um, and it completely overestimates, uh, what humans can do and what humans can be. Um, so yeah, probably, yeah, that fetishization of, of the ob objective or seeing that as a goal that is possible for us to reach as humans. Yeah. Dan's got all his own fetishes, so he'll be clear. Yeah, it's, it's, it's synthetic synthetic data. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, look at that four. Look at that cost function. <laughs> synthetic data is gonna, gonna it's gonna it's gonna save us all. Uh and, and, and the second question that we want to ask that we that we ask many of our guests is uh, is what book or article do you think everyone should read? And so by everyone you mean every Every, every scholar, every, every, listener, every, every listener to, every of the listener show. to this podcast. <laughs> so all the good ones, basically. Not the bad ones. Um, so I really want to say um, Cargo Cult Science uh, by Richard Feynman. So it's a speech rather than a paper, I guess. Um, though, of course, like with the, the heavy caveat that um, I know that Feynman is, is maybe not the... the but probably wasn't the, the nicest person, and that the this com this concept of uh, yeah of comparing someone's act genuine religion as cargo cult um, to something that's ridiculous is obviously really insensitive. But taking that aside, which might be a, a large step, um, I think it's this is a it's it's a really um, good speech that um, goes into some um, nice things about scientific integrity and the scientific process. It includes that wonderful quote about. Um, it's what's it? Uh, it's important that, not to fool yourself. Yeah, exactly. You're the easiest person to fool. Exactly, but it's but, like, but it's, it, I was like looking for the exact thing. But yeah, you're the easiest person to fool. Um, and you mustn't fool yourself. Well, I, I definitely am today. Um, <laughs> I, I think we all are most of the time, which is exactly no, the reason right. why we need things like um, like pre registration. Well, maybe not no. exactly pre registration, but we need to be aware of this. But yeah, but that wasn't the reason why why I would choose this. But just in general, I think it's it's a really nice um, speech that is very um, oh god, I'm missing the word. It kind of it's 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 already perspicacious. Yeah, completely perspicacious. No, it's kind of um, like it, it. Even though this was from um, a couple of decades ago, it's really very relevant now. Um, and reading this, uh, especially as maybe maybe if maybe if you're stuck in a research environment where you can't make all the choices that you want to make when it comes to open science, um, it might be quite nice to, um, to have the, to read this as a kind of speech of, about hope about uh, scientific integrity and the scientific process. Uh, I like that. We're all about hope. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, the, ho you're the hopeful one here between the, between the two of us, aren't you? Wow. <laughs> yes, I you're think You're such so. an optimist, James. No. 
but <laughs> full yeah, of hope so, and flowers. Sometimes I'm very fond of flowers. You'd never, you'd never think it, but um, I generally have flowers in the house. I like them. I like would, the fact that would, would it's, you have it something pretty, but also you get to cut its head off. Would, would you have flowers in the house if it wasn't for the missus, for your wife? Um, yeah, probably. Sometimes I put flowers in my hair, Dan. So if anyone asks me about them, I can say, "What the fuck are you looking at?" Good conversation starter. One thing oh, that yeah. I've noticed. One thing that I've noticed that I'm doing. Um, I, I, I've been I've been converted to 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 the, to the Norways. Is just by default now. I'll always light candles for dinner, no matter what the occasion. It's always candles. I actually had um, a, a, a Christmas dinner with a bunch of Aussie blokes and we've all been here for 10 years and we're all talking about how since 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 moving here, even when we visit Australia, when we're with the family, the family's like, what the hell are you doing, mate? But we, we just light the candles because that's just what you do. <laughs> it's 4,000 degrees outside and you want to bring the flame you bring, indoors. You, you bring <laughs> you the flame indoors. Can, 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 can you imagine at any, at any hospital in the UK or in Australia lighting a candle can you imagine doing that in Norway? At a hospital? Yeah. In no, Norway. Yeah. In Norway, it's kind of like, well, well, of course, it's, 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 it's cushly. It's cozy. This is what you do. Oh my oh, God. Yeah, I'm this sure the candle's really going to help as you're going through renal failure. Well, they're, they're, they're not, they're not, it's not an Eat operating. jelly through a tube <laughs> with a fucking candle. They're not an operating. People take it too far sometimes. They're not Even an operating. Sophia's shocked. That yeah, is fantastic. It's, it's, I love but, it. But 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 apparently Norway has has among the worst uh, statistics when it comes to fires. Un- unsurprisingly, why? <laughs> yeah, and it's lighting e- e- candles every night, e- in everywhere. House. Yeah, e- e- it's it's crazy. And then we have we have our fire safety course every year, and 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 we have the same oh. bloke, and he's 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 great, and he always tells us, "Yep, the stats haven't changed. Fires are way worse in Norway." And all the internationals are going like, "It's the candles! It's the candles!" <laughs> Oh, the c- but they don't get well, rid of candles. It's, it's a small price to no, pay. but, the, but of there's course, no candle safety law or anything. It's too cozy. It's too cozy, Sophia. You have to understand. You can't. Cozy. You can't. You can't get away with the cozy. But considering how dark it is during winter, I totally understand, and I totally get it now. Um, despite the fire risks, but despite yeah, the fact that you own lights, like someone who's been through the enlightenment. Yeah. No. So you no. Have James, it's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's um. <laughs> It's just ah. Oh, once you live here, then you, you, you'll be converted like I am. So yeah, by habit, I have to go around making sure that every single candle in the house is is, is blown out. Um, oh my god, that would stress me out so much. Because <laughs> it's, it's just what you do. Can't like we go through so many tea lights. Anyway, things are things. We're not here to talk about candles. Um, but um, we've had. What were you saying before about the tangents being the fun bit? Sophia Cruel, thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. This is very yeah, very fun. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you had fun. We have a final, <laughs> final sign off for all the massive wallies of the Hertzy Nations. A final, final sign off for me. Yes. Uh, oh god. Oh, if only they could see the look on your face yeah. right now. Well, we have video, so that they can. So, oh my god! So exactly. <laughs> oh, fantastic. A final okay. sign off. The choices. Dan, the choices. Translate, translate <laughs> that face into audio, and we're going to win a fucking Grammy. We're, we're done. Everyone. We're done. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs>